0: hi everyone this is liam Deckel with the student screenwriting podcast today we're here with steven bernstein a writer director and cinematographer of a number of feature films including monster and the water boy his new book film production a filmmaker's guide to the creative process comes out in 2022 hi steven thanks for coming to the show today
1: my great pleasure thanks for having me
0: so let's dive right in uh at what age did you get into writing and filmmaking and what made you do so
1: well i I started writing when i was was quite young i mean it was uh rudimentary and and simple but it was a enthusiasm Uh, mine was a literary home my dad was a a doctor my uh, sister was uh you know fascinated by by writing and Uh, We had lots of books around us, and it's just something that I was uh, always doing um, along with uh, reading. I continued it at university. My degree was uh, uh, in uh, English literature, and then my graduate degree was in the philosophy of of language. And then through a series of accidents, I ended up working at the BBC, was uh, on a directing writing program there. Um, Initially was diverted by doing the early days of music videos. Um, and then work my way uh, back to it.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's slow down a bit there. Um, so well, where did you study? And you, where, where did you study?
1: I was in Washington, D.C. I went to uh, George Washington University, and then I was a graduate teaching fellow at uh, the University of, uh, of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And then really, uh, then I moved to England shortly thereafter, uh, where I uh, worked for the BBC. And the way the BBC works is, uh, they not only hire you, but they then subsequently train you. So um, I had three different stages of my education.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, do you think that going to university
0: helped uh, your film career and helped you start it?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Um, it, it's I think university is essential for lots of different reasons, um, but not as a vocational school. I think if you're going to uh, a university or for a film school, for that matter with the object of learning the film vocation, it's not ultimately going to be as valuable if you uh, extend your understanding of complex, philosophic, you know, emotional literary principles by studying a great many different things. Uh, My film study is useful certainly in understanding the technology and demystifying the technology so that when I'm on a set, uh, I'm not intimidated by it. kind of the reason I became a cinematographer was I found lighting and camera more complex than I did than things to do with, with writing. So I focused on that so it wouldn't be so uh, intimidating because a lot of the thing that prevents people from becoming filmmakers is uh, just the intimidation of the process. Film sets, uh, like when I was doing the action stuff on SWAT, at 300 people uh, working for me, uh, 23 cameras, uh, stunt people, um, three-quarter-size uh, models, visual effects, uh, you know, extras, uh, squibs, which are like gunshots on set to mm-hmm. uh, make explosions go off. Uh, to walk onto that when you're starting, of course, this is later in my career, uh, can be uh, quite intimidating. But of course, when you know something. Uh, it demystifies it, it makes it less uh, frightening, and you find that there's a plasticity and you're willing to work with something that you're not intimidated by. Mm -hmm. So I I think that was one of the vital things that my technical education gave. But ultimately in my writing, as I'm creating characters, as I'm developing unique voices uh, that will inhabit my films. That's based on my life experiences, people I've met, uh, people I've read about, things that I've studied. That comes from literature and lots of other experiences, not from going to a a film school. So to answer, getting back to your question, yeah, my education informs my writing and my filmmaking, but it wasn't the technical education that was of the most value. It was a more general education. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, uh, many uh, film professors even say that. Uh, they say that uh, studying film can teach you how to use the camera and how to get a great shot, but they won't be able to to help you tell a great story that comes from like yourself.
1: Um, I, I think that's a- absolutely true understanding, of course, that story is just one part of film a great emphasis because there's a sort of a paint by numbers philosophy now in Hollywood in particular, that you learn the three act structure that going back to Aristotle, everything's based on three acts. And all you have to do is tell a good story, and your audience will be engaged. I take a contrarian view in that uh, I think very little of films to do with the story. Yeah, we, we use it as a mechanism, insight into the human condition, what it is to be People and ultimately what engages audience is complex characters who we recognize parts of ourselves in and we're fascinated by their journey how they how they change but the story is simply a device ultimately to serve character and to understand character you have to understand people and to understand people you have to have experience of them you have to study them through um, psychology and through literature and philosophy and then you begin to form your own notional understandings of how people operate what their motivations are why they do things and that's what film is ultimately is a study of uh behavior i often say when i'm uh, teaching writing that all films are mysteries even when i'm doing an adam sandler uh, comedy it's still a mystery it's a mystery um about how a character will extract themselves from a, a difficult situation how they'll grow how they'll alter an action film how uh, people will survive, a romance, uh, How they, will they connect or will they not connect. Um, other films simply about why is this character behaving in this odd way and what is their motivation, what insight can we get into uh, this person's behavior. So for all those reasons, I think that it's a study of uh, human nature um, and the history of, of uh, human philosophies uh, that will inform everyone as, as filmmakers. Mm. Yeah. Uh,
0: so you said that you started your, you you kind of, you went to England uh, for the, and you worked for the BBC and I was going to ask, uh, you started your film career really shooting commercials in the UK uh, and you won some awards. And, you know, can you explain what really brought you to the UK and what it was like making commercials?
1: Well, a few different things. First, I, I actually started, because uh, when I was at Maryland, I was studying film as well. I had a great professor there named Robert Colker who uh, went on to write some very important books about film theory, particularly about semiology and structuralism, which is the, uh, the study of uh, film as a, as a system of encoding ideas, that uh, you have an idea, you have to find a way to represent it, you create a code. It could be a composition, uh, it could be a color, it could be a camera movement, but all those things are codes that Uh, passed to an audience consciously or unconsciously that then influences their understanding of the action that's portrayed. So uh, my time studying with him at at, uh, Maryland on the graduate program was hugely valuable for my subsequent understanding of of film. Uh, Then when I went to the UK, really the first things I was doing were were music videos. Uh, Music videos were just being invented then and they were really invented in the UK and initially we were just shooting um, in a little office in uh, SoHo where we put up a simple backdrop, a band would come in, we'd point the camera at them um, and then that would then be sent off to a and men at the various record companies who would look at the band and see how valuable they would be as performers uh, or as recording artists. Um, and then someone had the idea, not me sadly, but others to expand that and then create stories and little narratives. Um, and I shot a lot of the important music videos from that time. And, uh, they took off as a phenomenon. As I look at them now, I'm kind of embarrassed by them because they're <laughs> somewhat awful, uh, but they were seen by, uh, you know, millions of, of people. And for me, uh, uh, as a filmmaker, it was great because I used to say there's no such thing as a mistake in music video, only motifs. So we would do all sorts of crazy things, experiment with lighting, with cameras. I shot some stuff with a, a toy, uh, Fisher Price uh, camera, I shot other stuff on Super 8, stuff on 70 millimeter, 16 millimeter. Famously, I did a David Sylvian video where uh, after having done like three videos in a week, we we're all so exhausted um, that I thought it wouldn't be great if we shot the entire thing out of focus just to mm-hmm. see what their audience reaction would be. And we shot it entirely out of focus, just occasionally in focusing on on David, one of his background singers, and it became a huge hit and then a phenomena. And then within months, everyone was shooting music videos out of focus. Even now um, you see commercials or videos that are shot partially out of focus because it does something to the audience There's a desire for them to in focus. There's a sense of it being surreal. It affects your audience viscerally and emotively for ways we can't wholly measure. And that was the great thing about music videos was the fact that we could experiment with the form. It wasn't just story. It was how you um, create uh, emotive responses in your audience by manipulating your vi- various types of the, the technology and the, and the art, including lighting, composition, et cetera. Uh, then uh, I got noticed and, and um, I got uh, asked to shoot uh, commercials. And again, the biggest commercials in the world, at the time we've been done in the UK, a guy named Tony Kaye uh, hired me. Um, and yeah, we won a bunch of awards, the DAAD award, the Con Golden Lion and so on. Um, and again, the great thing about Tony, I mean, out of his mind, and I look to this day, I love him, but he uh, didn't believe in any uh, orthodoxies. Prior to that, commercials were shot in a particular way that you would have a product shot, uh, the message would be clear, copywriter would structure it. Uh, Tony just said, um, all of that um, uh, limits you, Um, it it, um, inhibits. So he said, let's shoot with multiple cameras. Uh, Let's not have any script per se. Uh, Let's uh, alter lenses and filters and lighting and shoot everything. And we would shoot in three days, what most people would shoot on an entire feature film. Um, and again, taking things out of focus, under overlit, lit, um, using lenses that hadn't been used for 25 years, uh, taking coatings of the series of, we actually removed the, what's called the anti-halation coating from the lens, which causes flare so lenses in the 1950s and 60s. And of course, then I got the American society of cinematography award for Deteriorating the quality of the image or diminishing the quality of the image. So, um, and then Tony, uh, you know, went on to great fame, and then I got noticed by other commercial uh, companies like you know, Ridley Scott's company, and so on. And um, soon I was working for um, everybody, and that led to uh, that led to features. So, you know, there's certain times in history in certain cities, um, Mexico City and the 1920s, uh, uh, Paris, uh, about the same time. And for my field, uh, London in the late 70s and 80s uh, was fertile ground for creative experimentation. So a lot of DPs, a lot of directors, a lot of writers came out of that period because there's a sense of freedom. Um, you could do um, anything. And uh, failure was, was not only uh, not discouraged, it was, it was a thought essential to your individual growth. So people would experiment anticipating the potential for failure but then pushing the envelope and discovering new ways to use the art form. So
0: I may be wrong but it seems like this experience for you uh, in the UK filming these music videos and these these commercials were kind of like a film school for you to learn how how, what works and what affects the audience. Beautifully put, it, it
1: was absolutely a film school I think that uh, the thing that ultimately uh, prevents all of us from growing is fear. Um, And fear is engendered by lots of different things in your creative journey. Um, One of the things that that causes fear is uh, fear of failure, that if you fail, you won't get another opportunity or you will be ridiculed or others will be considered superior to you. Or later when you're doing feature films, you won't get money if you fail. If your last film didn't make money, you won't be able to get money for your next one. Um, and when you become a cinematographer, and as I did start working on bigger and bigger uh, films until eventually I'm doing uh, you know, studio films that have budgets of over a hundred million dollars, uh, they hire you because you were radical. But the minute you're there, you're thinking, and they're kind of telling you, don't be, ra- <laughs> don't be radical because there's a lot in your hands. And if this fails, we're all in trouble. So it's a fascinating process that the higher you go up the food chain, the more conservative you become. And of course, it then diminishes you uh, as an artist. So yeah, the great thing about the 80s in the UK was we were um, fearless. Uh, you know, When you're young, you tend to be a little bit more fearless. Also because the, uh, the failures weren't as catastrophic. If a music video didn't work, there'd be plenty of others that you could try and um, experiment. So yeah, it was a film school for me, absolutely, in combination with the theoretical training I got uh, at my university education and from the very practical training I got at the BBC. But this then taught me how to take risks and not fear um, anything. And then you can't really know something until you experiment with it. It's also uh, directing actors, you know. Uh, I When I first started directing actors, which was in theater and again in the UK, um, I was terribly frightened of saying the wrong thing to them, giving them the wrong note, taking them in the wrong direction. But uh, as I got more and more interested in improvisation, I discovered that a big part of art and a big part of filmmaking is not planning, but discovery. Yes, planning is important, storyboards, and of a screenplay, but what you discover on a film set uh, is as if not more important. And to discover something, you have to experiment with something. So uh, like the film I did recently with John Malkovich called, um, I know it was called Switzerland, it was called Last Call Here, maybe called Dominion in Europe. Um, We did, I I wrote a script, everyone liked it, it was based on a play of mine. But then once on set, I was inclined to encourage uh, improvisation. Uh, not because I knew where it would go, but because I didn't know where it would go. And we'd work on discovering the truth of the moment and the truth of, character, of the character, because again, I wasn't frightened of failing. Um, and by not being frightened of failing, uh, we succeeded in, in creating some great performances and remarkable characters. So can you like describe to us what a day-to-day, like
0: what it's like going to work as a cinematographer and like what what do you do on a day-to-day
1: basis? Well, um d- different uh, jobs and films have different responsibilities um when I was a, a cinematographer when my principal occupation was cinematographer um you know it, it, it's not just the day but it's it's the overall uh, layout of uh, a plan a film schedule uh, and structure you started the pre-production by working closely uh, with the director on trying to find visceral antecedents or visceral connect connections visual if you will uh, connections. To what the director is trying to do, so uh, you would go over the script. You say, "Well, this first scene, um, uh, girl is leaving the guy, uh, and it's, it's it's kind of sad and tragic." And I want, and the director says, "I want the audience to feel the tragedy of this." So now you start thinking, "Well, how can I do that with uh, with with lighting? Uh, lighting isn't just, uh, and should never just be about illumination." Um, the cinematographers who say my only job is to illuminate, or my only job is to tell the story, uh, are missing a big part of what cinematography um, is. Um, you should think of it like music, and music doesn't always uh, tell the story, uh, nor is it just meant to be something in the background. It's something that meant to engage and affect audience. So what you do with your lighting is you find ways to engage and affect your audience. Um, a, uh, a, a lighting that's under key, low key, dark and shadowy might create mystery or a sense of sadness. Colors uh, have been shown uh, to affect audience in different ways. So you use different colors uh, based on what you want the audience uh, to feel. What you, uh, we're talking about going to the out of focus stuff that we did at the music videos, what you let the audience see and what you don't let them see will impact the way the scene uh, plays. Um, If you decide to do something that is out of focus, for example, or uh, heavily shadowed, that will also, uh, you know, affect audience in in a profound way. Camera movement. Um, If you, at some key moment, decide to do a a, a dolly in or a track in, um, that's like a quiet amplifier that the audience doesn't even notice the camera moving forward if it's done subtly, but they do feel a sense of heightened emotion at that moment. So you have like a creative checklist. You start with what the intentions are and then you make use of the various devices available to you as a cinematographer to uh, affect um, uh, that impact on your uh, audience. And you do it for the entire film. You then have people who work for you because it's a complex undertaking and on bigger films, there's a lot of crew. So you'll have your uh, gaffer who's, in charge of placing the lights uh, according to your uh, design. Um, the gaffer has people under them like the best boy who takes the stuff off the truck and organizes them. Basically, you'll have three or four electricians who work for your gaffer. You'll have a key grip, which uh, going back to the idea of camera movement um, that we talked about, uh, will be responsible for laying the dolly track and setting up the dolly, but also any flags, uh, which are like pieces of black material. So you trim where the light falls and where it doesn't fall that all comes down to the the grip as does all the rigging uh, of the lights. And then you've got a camera crew, you've got a camera operator uh, who operates a camera. Now immediately the independent filmmaker, the student filmmakers will say, oh, this crew's too big, Uh, this is madness, this is Hollywood. Well, there's a reason that we delegate um, so much in that because it's such a complex uh, and important undertaking, at least in terms of the the amount of money that's being spent, you don't wanna make a lot of errors so if you're a cinematographer and you're operating the camera and you're moving the lights and you're in charge of the grip and all the rest of the gripping and all the rest of it, uh, your mind isn't focused on, uh, completely on any one of those individual jobs. So if you have different department heads and you oversee them and supervise them, then you can make judgment on the other people's work. You outline to them what you want or you instruct them, but then they actually do the physical undertaking and you as a cinematographer step back and observe it all. Again, going back to the SWAT example, um, when we were crashing that airplane on the Third Street bridge or blowing up the front of the LA County Library with a three-story high bit of sugar glass, um, if I had been operating one of those cameras, I wouldn't have seen what the other 22 cameras were doing. I wouldn't be able to see where the stunt people were going. I wouldn't be able to make sure that all the lights were working in different positions. So uh, I was backed by a bank of monitors. Uh, I had given everyone like a, a, an army drill instructions what I wanted. They'd done the work, I inspected it, I set it up. And then by the time we made sure all the cameras running called action, um, I could get the overview of how the whole thing was gonna work together. So, um, and then you review it, you record it, you decide with you and the director whether it worked and then you move on to the next sequence. It's kind of a summary of, of what a, a, a cinematographer uh, does. Very different from my job as a director which is still based on the principle of supervision, where I'll have a lot of people working for me, including the cinematographer, but also the sound recordist, the production designer, the um, editor, the costume designer. And then rather than doing everything or even dictating everything that I want done, I provide the broad strokes, the overall plan. They bring me their work. I look at it, both encourage them to take risks, um, but to stay within the broad framework that I have established in my vision of the film, this idea of supervision and the people working within the supervision, uh, people being uh, encouraged to creatively experiment and then having someone to judge it and decide whether it fits in to the ultimate plan is the basis of all good filmmaking.
0: So that's a lot more than just uh, the guy who does the cameras. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's always, I remember going to a wedding once and uh, someone, my mother never quite understood, bless her, what I did when I was a cinematographer and someone had a little uh, stills camera that had broken and they brought it over to me and um, I think I had just finished uh, Murder 1600 with Wesley Snipes and Diane Lane and Alan Alda, huge Warner Brothers action film and uh, he said, I, I hear you're a camera guy could you fix this for me before the wedding starts? So, yeah, no, it's a little bit different than uh, just yeah. the, the guy who does the camera. You know, l- lighting's probably the biggest single thing that a cinematographer does, but also um, because lighting will affect everything that we perceive. It, uh, it, it you, I can take the same face and light it five different ways and make you feel five different things without the actor or actress emoting anything just by the lighting. But I can do the same thing with the camera movement by a push in and pull out, I can decide to shoot someone from the back. So we don't see their face, which, what does that do? It creates a big moment. Someone hears some bad news, or on the back of their heads. So the audience is thinking, what are they feeling? The longer you sustain that moment before you reveal the actual emotions that are shown on the face, the greater the tension is. So what I decide to show or don't show is a big part of my decision-making. And then uh, the camera movement, not only a push in, but a pull out or the composition. If I do an asymmetrical composition, like in a painting, uh, where I put a subject way on the edge of a frame, they'll feel alienated or isolated or vulnerable. The famous sequence in the film, Wait Until Dark, where Audrey Hepburn plays a blind woman who's being attacked by a guy in her, in her flat. She stands up, but rather than standing up in the middle of the frame, she stands on the very edge of the frame with her back towards the rest of the frame. Now, without uh, anything else happening, just by her position in that composition, the audience immediately feels tense and that she's vulnerable and something bad is gonna happen. Then what the director does is holds that shot because uh, in editing, another decision that a director makes, but in consultation with an editor, uh, editing has a rhythm like music and the audience uh, uh, unconsciously picks up that rhythm. When that rhythm is violated or changed, it profoundly affects audience. So in this sequence, She stands up and we're expecting a cut because the cuts have been coming every two seconds, but now it holds and it holds and it holds and it holds. So we talked about this before, when a shot's holding, uh, the audience is getting tense. When a subject is in an asymmetrical composition way on the edge of a frame, they're getting tense. Now another visceral element, now the music and the music's building to a crescendo. So now all these bits of encoding, this is what I, when I was talking about semiology before, this is what encoding is. These are codes by which we pass messages to the audience. So all the messages to the audience are something is about to happen, stand by. So the audience is on the edge of their seat, and what happens? Nothing happens. The music begins to dissipate, she begins to the middle part of the frame, the audience relaxes, and at that moment, the director has someone jump across the frame and jump on top of her. And whenever I've seen that film with an audience, everyone jumps out of their seat. Okay, now, What's the story? Well, there there isn't a story at that moment. She just stands up and someone jumps on her. What's the dialogue? Uh, There is no dialogue. What's the acting? She just turns and looks. So all the elements we've been traditionally taught that are essential to filmmaking, none of them are used in what is one of the most effective uh, three minutes in cinema history. So it points to a different understanding of the way that cinema works And therefore different understanding of the occupations within cinema was the importance of cinematography, importance of editing importance of music, and importance of the director, not just as a storyteller, but as a manipulator of visceral elements to affect audience, principally foremost and most Mm significant.
0: So let's go back to your time in the UK. So how did (laughs) you move. how did you move from shooting commercials to becoming a cinematographer on, like, huge Hollywood films? And what was that transition like?
1: Well, um, you know, uh, there's, there used to be prejudice, less so now. Um, but depending on what you had done before, uh, what your value would be in a different field. So. Uh, Music videos for the most part was uh, not highly regarded by people doing commercials and commercials directors were not highly regarded by people doing features. The idea is that music video people are all crazy. Um, It's a low technical bar, uh, they're kids and they don't know what it's about. Um, Commercials in terms of features, they're slow. uh, They're too focused on detail and they won't be able to stand the pace necessary Uh, for doing a film. So uh, the transitions weren't always easy. The great thing was I was working for features directors who were doing commercials. So that uh, helped with the transition. Uh, The fact that I had a background in theater and literature meant that when I went to meet with directors I could talk about uh, literature and philosophy and acting and there was a comfort there. There's a great fear in features that a cinematographer won't understand actors' processes, then won't respect it. The fact that I had written and directed for theater was a huge uh, advantage to me. Um, and then when I actually began shooting films, of course, the first ones were very, very small. In a film called "The," S- called S- I can't remember now, "Scandal of the Secretary" in the UK, uh, it was a few million pounds, which at that, that time was a fair sum of money for an independent, but still quite small. Um, and that was well received. And then. Uh, a friend of mine um, was asked to go shoot a film that had fallen into a disarray in Mexico called uh, Like Water for Chocolate, uh, cumo Aqua para Chocolate, And um, they were gonna shut down because the cinematographer, the director had fallen out and they thought they only needed a few weeks of what's called pickups to finish the film. And would I be willing to go to Mexico to finish the movie? Um, And I did go to Mexico. Uh, The few weeks turned into, I think, seven months. Um, we shot in a place called Hunia, and then Mexico City, um, and then Del Rio in Texas, and um, the film became a huge uh, success. Um, it uh, became the highest-grossing foreign language film of all time. It won every award imaginable except for the Oscar and the Golden Globe because it missed the deadlines, um, and it became a phenomenon in Hollywood, most of all, because of the radical way that it was shot and uh, people weren't used to independent Mexican films being uh, national phenomena in the United States. So I was invited to uh, Hollywood. Um, I got to meet um, everybody, um, a huge variety of very famous directors and producers. I was feted by all the studios and I decided to move from the uh, UK to uh, Los Angeles to take advantage of it. I thought it was gonna be easier than it was. The fact I wasn't in the union, uh, the fact that I had never worked on an American studio film, um, all that uh, became obstacles, which uh, in time um, I, I overcame. But uh, the transitions were, were difficult, not only from commercials to features, but from uh, British features to uh, American features and then from American independent features to uh, huge uh, studio films.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've worked as a cinematographer on like serious films such as Monster. Um, And then you also have done films like White Chicks. Uh, (laughs) So do you work differently on these different types of films and how does like the story uh, and like the seriousness of the story shape your cinematography?
1: Well, um, they are different and and the same. Um, The reason that uh, big directors hire me is because um, I uh, serve their vision. Uh, but I serve their vision um, by understanding um, what the mechanism of their vision is. So when I did Monster or, uh, no, Bombeck films, which are comedies, but more serious comedies, um, or when I did action films or horror films, uh, the first thing I'd I'd work out at the first meeting is whether I wanted to work with that director and then what their vision was, whether they had a clearly established vision. And then going back to all the things we've been talking about today, uh, I would see if there was a way that I could use composition, camera movement, um, you know, lighting, um, the rhythm of edits and all the rest of it to achieve what that director wanted. So it's the same principles, whatever film you're doing, you have an idea, you encode the idea and you use those different elements to serve the idea. And if your elements in combination with performance and with acting work, uh, then the film will work. So the principles I used to make uh, White Chicks work, the same principles I use uh, to make uh, monster work on monster, um, we wanted the audience to have a sense of uh, of a world in chaos, a world where none of the characters were safe, and also to have a sense that it's a, an underbelly. It's the underside of America. We wanted a sense of uh, deterioration and uh, corruption, both physical corruption and visual corruption. So um, we did a lot of handheld cameras, that was the encoding that I thought would be appropriate for that. So the sensor was almost like a documentary a look. So we had the camera on the shoulder a lot. Rather than using subtle uh, desaturated colors, which is what I would use in a romance or a drama, we would punch up the saturations working with the art department. So the colors were um, uh, primaries rather than um, uh, uh, Secondaries, um, or um, uh, rather than being subtle, they were uh, and nuanced. They were uh, bright and uh, and garish. Um, we uh, rather than using um, an elegant film stock with no grain, I as when I used to shoot with film, I intentionally underexposed and then printed up so the film became grainier uh, and and uh, and and rougher. So. Um, That's the way I encoded the uh, images for that film. Uh, On White Chicks, um, I had learned from doing lots of comedies, uh, uh, Adam Sandler comedies, uh, Half-Baked, I also did um, uh, lots and lots of films that were comic in nature, uh, that very often comedy works best in a two shot because uh, you want not only action, but reaction where the comedy often resides. So I pulled the camera back, handheld doesn't work with comedies. So instead the camera was on a heavy dolly to make sure it was uh, stable. Uh, High contrast lighting with heavy shadow subverts comedy. So the way I encoded the ideas on on White Chicks or Waterboy or films like that is via higher key lighting with more fill light, less shadow. So it's all the same principles. Mm -hmm. Um, You have an object, you have an intention. Now you use the devices available to you to encode ideas and affect audiences viscerally as well as intellectually.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, recently, you've you've actually written some films and directed. Um, what was it like taking charge of a production after working on working as a cinematographer for for nearly fifty movies?
1: Um, well, it, it, similar. Now, I had, of course, to be fair, um, I had been directing. Um, theater and I'm directing commercials, I'm directing music videos. Um, So I had lots of experience of directing uh, actors and lots of experience with writing because I I wrote books and plays and films for all that time. Um, The transition then was kind of easy because I took the skills I learned in theater and then the leadership qualities necessary as a cinematographer because the cinematographer is after the director is the most important person on set because you have the most people working for you. You also determine the speed at which the production goes and speed is related to time and time is related to money. So the cinematographer understands the responsibility of making the day, of working quickly, and of course, creating the feelings in the audience using those elements I've talked about. Uh, The director simply expands that brief to not only be working with uh, the camera, the composition, the lighting, the camera movement, but also now production designs. They'll be working with the production designer, costuming, The actors themselves. So it's the same principle of delegation and leadership, the same sense of responsibility that you uh, have to make your days and stay within your budget, um, and you have to achieve something for an audience so for me it was a a natural uh, and organic uh, uh, transition and Look, I've been doing it for nearly 13, 14 years now, and uh, I will occasionally still shoot something, but uh, it's it's hard for me to still do cinematography because it's gotten to the point now in my life where it's hard for me uh, to work for other people unless they're absolutely uh, brilliant because I've done uh, all these jobs now. I've produced, I've written, I've directed, I was cinematographer, I've been assistant director. Um, uh, you know, I've seen all the different occupations from, both below the line, which is the technical side, above the line, which is where the producers and directors and actors reside. I've acted in films. Um, I've worked on big films and small films. I've shot TV shows. Um, I've shot TV movies and I've shot uh, big features. Um, it's uh, now I'm more interested in making important art than any art. And I'm more interested in doing something important than simply makes money. Although, you know, money is something that's important and we have to live off it. Uh, ultimately, if you're not loving the work you're doing, uh, the money matters less. So um, the new films I've got, I'm working on now, which is a film doing with Terry Crews, which is based on a novel of mine called uh, GRQ, um, is I think a really important film about contemporary culture and about um, uh, celebrity culture and about cryptocurrency and all the rest of it and Terry's a, a great and important actor and we're putting a great cast together with that. And the other film I'm, I'm doing um, as a writer and producer is a, is a comedy, but again, uh, a lot of the same important cultural issues. So um, I think ultimately uh, what's satisfying about what I'm doing now is I have even more creative input than I had before. So I could still make a, a good living while doing things that I'm I'm, I'm proud of. Not that I'm not proud of anything, that I, I'm very proud of White Chicks, proud of Half-Baked, uh, uh, proud of Little Man, Waterboy, and, uh, but proud of the dramas as well. But what's great um, and terrifying when you have control of everything as a director, as a producer, is there's so many uh, creative tools to work with that you can really uh, test yourself and test your ideas. And you find that by having to do difficult things and by failing, um, you grow as a person. And that remains the thing that's most important to me. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, one question that I ask, um, like most of my guests is, uh, like, do you think that living in LA makes your career easier? Um, but you kind of like broke that mold by, you know, kind of creating a su- successful career some- in somewhere that wasn't LA or even America. Um, so can you talk about like how somebody nowadays could, you know, make a film career internationally?
1: Yeah, I I think LA is great because I have a lot of contacts here and and, um, where a lot of the money comes from is Los Angeles. But I should say that uh, the Decoding Annie Parker, which the film I did with Helen Hunt, Samantha Morton and Aaron Paul, um, I raised all the money from that uh, for that from outside of Los Angeles. And um, I shot it near Los Angeles, but not in Los Angeles Uh, with Dominion, Last Call, the one with John Malkovich and Risa Fons, and Ron Gary and Tony Hale. Um, again, I raised the money from outside Los Angeles and we shot that in Montreal. Um, so, and I would say the, at least half the films that I've shot on TV shows have been shot outside of Los Angeles. Now there's a lot of context here. There's a lot of work. There's also a lot of competition. So my view is the right path is the journey that I took which is find a market where uh, you can get the opportunity, uh, build the resume, um, increase your experience Uh, and then come to Los Angeles. Um, I'm kind of mixed about what I feel about LA. I mean, there's great technicians here and great artists, uh, but there's a lot of horrible people here as well to be very frank. So um, I think the quality of life was better in London um, than it was in Los Angeles, but the amount of work, uh, there's probably a greater amount of work in Los Angeles and quality of life matters and quality uh, of, of the of the work itself is is important and how are you going to develop as a person so the fact there's such a lively theater scene in London the fact there were so many writers and uh, intellectuals that were readily available for me to sit at the feet of and learn from uh, was right for me uh, at the time going straight to Los Angeles yeah the beach is great um, the mountains are pretty um, there's lots of great parties but I don't know if that's the best thing for someone trying to evolve as an artist right away. Um, yeah. So now, now I'm going to
0: ask you some questions that are more uh, for like the students listening. Um, okay. So what, what is your advice for like a high schooler or like a college student who wants to get into the, the industry?
1: I think that it's the companion skills that are as important, if not more important, than the technical skills. One thing you shouldn't do is buy a camera. The idea that buying a camera makes you a filmmaker um, is like um, saying someone who buys a scalpel um, is a doctor. Um, the camera's of no use to you whatsoever. It's going to be a financial burden that you feel an obligation to use in the future. Uh, when the camera becomes obsolete, you're still going to be trying to sell it to your friends uh, to use because you want to get your investment back. And that's not what's necessary to be a filmmaker. There's a very lively and in fact, every film, including every major feature film, hires their equipment from equipment houses. Very few cinematographers or directors uh, own cameras. So don't do that. Um, the companion skills I talk about is an understanding of actors. The thing that most uh, film crews uh, or parts of films crews, cinematographers, or even directors don't feel comfortable around is the process of acting. So the view is, well, as I don't understand it, I won't get involved in it. I'll just stick the camera up, do a couple of shots and let the actors do their thing. Well, being able to give actors adjustments and notes is essential as a director and essential to your understanding of your work as a cinematographer as well. So I would tell everybody, enroll in an acting course, even if you don't mean to be an actor, just so you understand what actors are doing and understand the processes. So you're not intimidated by the process, Uh, that they're undertaking so you can communicate with them uh, more practically and easily. Um, I would also say uh, a degree in English um, or or theater is hugely valuable. Again, not focusing on the practical, but um, learning um, the history of ideas. Uh, Learn about semiology and structuralism, uh, postmodernism and deconstruction. What is semiology? Learn all that stuff because... Semiology goes back to this idea again of, of the encoding of ideas. It's really simple. If I want to suggest an idea of a cow to you, I could say the word cow. But just because I say the word cow, there's no cowness in that word. Uh, I'm not giving you a cow. We're not seeing a cow. But when you hear that syllable, uh, all I have to do is say it in the code that you and I both know, English, which is just a code. And you associate the idea with the word, the word is the code, um, the cow is the encoded. So when we expand that to the idea of love, um, I can have the concept of love, how do I encode it? Well, it could be in a phrase, it could be in a type of lighting, it could be in a camera movement, all those things. I talked about tension before, how do I encode tension? So what semiology does is it divides uh, the, the world of ideas, into what is signified, which is the idea, and the signifier, which is like the word or the shot or the composition or the lighting, how we convey ideas through codes. So by the study of semiology and structuralism, you realize that everything in film is a code. Music is a code that creates, elicits reactions in audiences. Composition is a code. Camera movement is a code. Performance, language and a script is a code. So everything is encoding ideas and you combine ideas to affect audience and elicit a response. When you start understanding film as a code, you're halfway uh, to becoming a much better filmmaker than the majority of people uh, working out there. But then also um, in studying the history of ideas, of philosophy, um, it goes to people's motivations. You know, How are people driven? What's their uh, reasons for taking action? or not taking action. So how can a filmmaker, certainly a writer or director not take some courses in um, psychology along the way um, or the more rarefied of psychology, which is philosophy. How can you not do those things and then be a writer because you're gonna be writing about people. The idea that all you're doing is um, telling stories will subvert um, your thinking and your entire career because anybody can tell a story but stories are about people. And if you have no understanding of people, then your story is never going to be important. So I think you first have to study uh, the, the human nature, the human condition by philosophy, by literature, uh, and by experiencing it, and by experimenting with yourself and taking risks by doing things that make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, a philosophy I had when I was young was, if it made me uncomfortable, I should do it. Because the things that make me uncomfortable are the things that I avoid, and the things that I avoid uh, will inhibit my growth as an artist and as a person. So to uh, high schoolers, to uh, college students, anyone studying on film, the idea that you just study film and film or story is going to limit you profoundly. Do all the things that make you uncomfortable, grow in your understanding of language through uh, the things I've discussed, but also of people, and then work your way back to the technical. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the course that I took. And I think ultimately the course that is best, uh, for everyone.
0: So going back to, uh, that, that uh, saying about the camera, you, you don't buy a camera. Um, what, 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 what like the best tip you can give as like an accomplished cinematographer, uh, to like a young filmmaker who's shooting on like their phone to make their movies look better.
1: Right. Uh, well, I think what I ultimately, um, don't uh, do easy stunts. Um, audiences want to be surprised. I think what I said earlier about all films being mysteries, uh, there's two ways to set up a, a mystery that engages an audience. First, you uh, suggest that you're withholding certain information from them. And then you create characters who are compelling. If a, a character is a stereotype um, or an archetype or uh, is merely comic or farcical, Or is performed by an actor who's not very good, it takes the audience out of their engagement. They go, Oh, this is a student actor. Uh, This is a farce. Uh, I'm not interested. It's just going to be a bit of noise and it's going to be over. So, going back to the idea of doing things that you fear, um, one of the first things I would suggest to every uh, director is when you're hiring people, bringing people into your film, don't hire people you feel comfortable with, other students or other high school students, Um, ring a a local agent or, or manager or go to the local theater and hire some grizzled, old and highly skilled actors. Right away, your film will improve by about 75%. Because now rather than a camera pointing at somebody who can't act and who the audience doesn't believe, suddenly there are real people who the audience does believe and therefore you engage them. Um, The second thing I would say is as you're writing, um, show complexity and inconsistency in a character. Again, uh, farce is a sure way to disengage audience because they realize it's not a representation of the real uh, physical world. So that's why I think improvisation is so important. Get some experienced actors, have them improvise, um, put the camera on your shoulder, and suddenly your film will have a life it wouldn't have had if you shot with a couple of friends your same age, uh, and you do some some terrible jokes or some terrible puns, and with characters that don't seem at all realistic. The third thing is, and most importantly, is subvert story. The idea that every character should speak only in the service of story is the best way to make your characters uninteresting. Uh, What I do when I write my screenplays, and uh, I've been just commissioned to write another three of them, and I've written about eight over the last four years, all commissioned. And the reason people are buying my writing is my characters don't just serve the story. My characters are complex. I write long backstories that never appear in the screenplay, but all my characters have histories. And then it infuses everything that I write with their complexities and inconsistencies. Suddenly there are people, real people, who audiences can relate to. So for a high school or for a college student doing their first film, Um, to do the things that make them comfortable, like using student actors, uh, writing scripts with easy jokes and puns, and everything driven by the story uh, is the sure way to undermine yourself. Do the opposite of that, make yourself uncomfortable um, and you'll be more successful. As for uh, cinematographers, uh, again, the focus should be not so much on the camera, but on lighting. It is lighting that separates real cinematographers from ones who wanna be cinematographers. And lighting is that not that hard to learn, providing again, you break the rules, uh, which is look at what works um, and it creates feelings of the emotion rather than doing things like trying to replicate the lighting in a room. That's never your job as a cinematographer is to replicate lighting or even to illuminate. It's to create feelings in your audience. Uh, the reason I became relatively famous as a cinematographer is everyone used to light from above um, three quarter up, three quarter to the side, and that was the standard studio lighting. I was looking at Renoir, and I thought, "Well, Renoir doesn't light from above. Renoir lights from below, and you barely notice the lighting, but the characters seem to air a desk from within." So, what if I took soft lights and put them on the floor and uplit all my characters with a little bit of fill light? Well, what would happen? And what happened was magic commercials, music videos, features that won cinematography awards, all because of my radical approach to lighting, because my thinking changed about what the nature of lighting was. It wasn't to illuminate, it wasn't to serve story, and it wasn't fear-based. It was, what if I did something radical and dangerous and for which I could potentially fail, but that seemed to go to something that would more profoundly affect the audience.
0: So uh, I-, I read that you- you've worked as a judge at many film and literary contests, is that, is that right? Yeah. Lots and lots of them, yes. So, with that in mind, what's like what's the most common mistake you see screenwriters make, and how can they fix it?
1: Um I think what I, what i just said, which was um, too too great of a focus on on story okay. um is, is is the biggest mistake because the idea that just telling a story is important in and of itself, uh, it isn't the case. Um it's really about characters and creating complexities and inconsistencies in characters is what's going to best best serve. The second yeah. thing is, um, the uh, not hiring the best people you can hire. Bad actors will undermine any film. And generally people hire bad actors because they're frightened of hiring good ones. You'd be amazed what actors you can get by just picking up the phone. Why people are frightened to phone people or email them or text them. I don't get it. What's the worst I can say? No, what's gonna happen to you? Nothing. But if you ring up and read Robert De Niro and say, hey, would you be in my film? And he says, yes. How much does your film get elevated at that moment? Um, and then uh backstory, I think for everybody, but creating backstory for characters that are complex. Films work when characters are interesting. Films don't work when it's just a setup for the big, particularly in short films, the big turn at the end. Oh my God, he's gonna die, or uh he was the girl all along, or it was all a dream, or any of that stuff. What happens in the last two minutes of the film is not the film. And if you're setting everything up just for the big which everybody does in shorts, your film's gonna fail. You'll get a little awe or a gasp or a laugh, but that's not the movie. Create complex characters, hire great people, do it fearlessly, take risks, uh, and then your film, I'd rather see a film that takes risks and fail than something that's very uh, sort of boilerplate standard, uh, bog awful, um, of which there are hundreds of festivals uh, all around the world, take risks.
0: Mm-hmm. So th- that was my last question, Stephen.
1: Um, thank you for coming. No, my pleasure. Yeah, it, Really I interesting. Hope, I, hope, yeah. I hope it was of use um, um, and a great pleasure speaking to you. And I wish everybody listening uh, great good fortune. All right.
0: Thank you for coming, Stephen. If anyone wants to know more about Stephen and his work, check out his Instagram page, Stephen Bernstein, Director, Writer. And if you're interested, check out his upcoming book, Film Production, A Filmmaker's Guide to the Creative Process. Thank you for listening to the Student Screenwriting Podcast.